Hello and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. By recapping and reviewing Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and today, Preacher. And today we are reading Preacher issues 44 through 46. Alright, this is the second part of a long story arc in which Jesse has arrived in this small town of Salvation, Texas and become the sheriff. Yeah, it's basically a showdown between him and Odin Quincannon, who is considered one of the major villains of the series, so much so that they put him in the first season of the TV show, despite the fact that he really is only in this one story arc of the comics. Yeah, sort of a deliberate Western pastiche in the middle of an otherwise Western pastiche comic book. <laughs> right, yeah, that's true. Have we talked about the fact that Garth Ennis basically did the same storyline in Punisher? No. Oh, well, he did. There's a story arc where Frank Castle arrives in a small town and faces off against the corrupt guy who runs the whole town. Yeah, pretty much. Or faces off against the leader of the baddies who are terrorizing the town. Okay. Yeah, it's a classic guy movie genre piece. Yeah, and I think the Punisher arc is explicitly called Streets of Laredo. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, let's talk about Preacher number 44. This issue is written by Garth Ennis. It has pencils by Steve Dillon. It has colors by Pamela Rambo and a cover by Glenn Fabry. And this cover is showing us a Nazi dominatrix. <laughs> I have written what can only be described as a Nazi dominatrix. Well, and you were proven right because that's how I described it. Yeah, this is, you know, one of the more shock for shock's sake character designs in all of Preacher. And here it is right on the cover. We don't get a ton of Christina in this particular three-issue segment, but we do start on her. Yeah, she's present and significant as a background figure for this conflict. And by Christina, you mean Christina Langell or Christina Custer, Jesse's mother, who he has just discovered living in this town under an assumed name. Right, also known as Jody. Yeah, having previously been thought dead. Yeah, and what we get here is a very nice wordless page of Christina sort of reassuming her old identity by letting her hair out of the ponytail that she's been keeping it in for years and letting it fall down around her shoulders as she did in her past life. Yeah, this is a lovely piece of visual storytelling. The ponytail is rather reminiscent of the way that Jody wore his hair. This uh, is the, true. You know, the monstrous evil person that she had accidentally appropriated the name of. So when she straightens her hair out, she not only reassumes her own look as opposed to his, but she also covers up the bullet scar on her left temple Indeed. That, that he gave her. So she's, she's herself again, and she's moving past the tragedies that have brought her here. Now we go to Jessity Custard, <clears throat> the Reverend Sheriff Jessity Custard, who, with his dog Skeet, is climbing into his pickup truck. That's right. He's going over his plans for the day out loud. And I like this here as he pauses to sort of marvel at the fact that there's now a place in his life called Mom's. Well, first we're going to drive over to John's Hollow and pick up Cindy, and then we're going to go meet some folks, kind of get to know the town a little bit. Then we're going to pick up some groceries and such and swing by Mom's in time for lunch. How's that sound? Mom's, I swear. The car won't start, though, so he gets out and walks back to the house, and he revises his day plan as he goes. First we're going to call Cindy and have her bring over the cruiser. Then we're going to take a sledgehammer to this worn-out piece of shit. Then we're going to go grab a beer. How's that sound? And the truck explodes behind him. We have a rare look at Jesse looking genuinely disturbed here. 
Because yeah. we get our title, Custer's Law. Yeah, he doesn't get caught flat-footed very often, but that time he missed being bombed by sheer luck. Yeah. Oh, I also wrote down Michael Clayton. Yeah, Michael Clayton is a film. But actually, no. Because in Michael Clayton, when Michael Clayton's car gets car-bombed, he manages to use that to fake his own death. Oh, that's true. That's uh, true. Whereas... Right now we find out on the very next page that... That Quinn Cannon knows he's alive. Quinn Cannon knows he's alive. Yeah, we come in on Quinn Cannon's office. He is on the phone with his lawyer, Miss Oatlash, complaining that the bomb failed to kill Jesse Custer. And she chews him out in return for talking about bombings over the phone. I am a respected attorney at law. I can't discuss bombing people over the telephone. Well, get on over here and discuss it then. He demands that she come in, but she is busy with her fun and games which we can overhear involve whips cracking, and as Quincannon complains, leave the men unfit for work. Yeah, and now we cut to her side of the conversation, and she's wearing, like, a Nazi army jacket, and a Nazi cross, and has a Nazi flag up on the wall, and there's a picture of Hitler, which she salutes. Yeah, salutes as she, uh, leaves for work. But not like a regular type salute. No. Like a Nazi salute. Oh. Much worse. Yep. At this point, I'm wondering, is it possible that there's not a political read to a scene that involves blue-collar workers literally enjoying being beaten by their rich boss's lawyer? No, I, I mean... So we're getting to it kind of early, but yeah, I was thinking as I was reading this, like, oh man, thank God we're reading 90s comics before they got all political. <laughs> Well, and there's there was sort of a distrust of education element in the last a couple of issues as Quincannon was complaining that he didn't like the idea that Miss Oatlash made her contacts through people she met in law school. Right. 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 It's okay because she met them doing sexual deviancy with them. Right. And there's there's almost a subtle theme here that like bad guys subconsciously congregate. And let me be specific, I mean that she's a bad guy because she's a Nazi. But, you know, the low-level troublemakers end up working for the meatpacking plant, the owner of which is a murderous tyrant who has a Nazi as a lawyer. Yeah. And who, we will learn, knows he can find reliable allies in the KKK. Yeah, well, n now we're really spoiling it. But yes, let's continue. We find Jesse and Cindy driving to work in the cruiser. Well, not to work. They're driving to go see Quincannon. Oh, well, they're going to work when they get there. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse just automatically knows that it was Quincannon who tried to blow up his truck. Succeeded on blowing up his truck. Tried to blow up him. Yeah. Oh, man. We're lucky he didn't get the dog. Yeah, I mean, I kept... I honestly, this comic having been as dark as it has been up to this point, I just keep expecting the dog to get it. <laughs> so far. Like, <laughs> Skeet, we're, we got our fingers crossed for you, buddy, but you've come to a dangerous place. <laughs> this is a comic book where anybody can die and you are the dog. <laughs> You are a cute dog. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're driving to Quincannon's. Well, what are you planning on doing? Never plan to act of violence, Cindy. Just let it happen natural. Jesse kicks in the door to Odin's office. Well, I want to talk about first the fact that these two guys are, like, itching for a rematch. They're like, okay, this time, this time we're gonna get him. Yeah, and he takes out one guy just by, just by dint of the door slamming into him as he kicks it open. <laughs> dint. Maybe that's the sound it made when it bounced off his skull. Dint. <laughs> Dint. <laughs> yeah, he kicks open the door, he pokes the other guy in the throat, knocks them both out in two panels. That gets him to Quincannon's secretary, 
And he uses the word of God on this receptionist to find out where Quinn Cannon is. Uh, Cindy is really curious about why the hell that worked. Jesse describes it as an old Native American trick. Well, he says old Indian trick. He does, being that he's, you know, a cowboy. Yeah. Yes, he describes it the way he would if he were in a Western movie. In addition to being prone to politically incorrect language, which he is. Just a moment after being warned by the receptionist, Quincannon sees Jesse burst through the door. Come here, you little peckerhead. And he promptly starts holding him out the window by his ankles. Yeah, and it seems like he might just be about to drop Quincannon until Cindy fires her gun into the air. Miss Oatlash is also protesting, saying that it is a violation of Mr. Quincannon's rights and is totally illegal. I am a witness! This is outrageous! So Cindy stops him from dumping Quincannon out the window. Why not? Because it's against the law. So Jesse spares Quincannon, but he demands a check for the damage to the vehicle. Word of advice, little man. Ain't no one ever took a shot at me and walked away intact before, especially not no sawed-off runt like you. You play smart and call this quits here. And Miss Oatlash? Yes? Don't try to frighten me with the law, ma'am. You ain't scary. And as Jesse leaves, Quincannon concludes he'd better go to the bathroom. And so does Miss Oatlash. They're having very different reactions to Jesse Custer here. Yeah, Miss Oatlash is, like, clearly sort of aroused by this turn of events. Which is the same way that I read Hair Star and The General back in The War and the Sun. Yeah. But you didn't read it that way. Yeah, but it's definitely, it's definitely what's going on here. She has a little bit of a crush on Jesse and him getting in her face, uh, exacerbated the situation. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean to use a baited word there. <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> so back in the cruiser, Cindy strikes up a conversation about Jesse killing people. She says he can't now. He's wearing the star, which means he enforces the law. No killing, no arresting without proof. And what the hell was that shit you pulled on the receptionist? I swear that thing you did with your voice felt like nails scraping down inside my soul. Well, that's a kind of a hypnosis thing I learned from certain monk fellas during my travels in the Orient, in my youth. Cindy remains skeptical. Yeah, Jesse promises he'll do his best to keep things legal and Cindy is mollified, but she still doesn't buy the Orient. Travels in the Orient, Jesus Christ. Back at the office, Jesse offers to buy Cindy lunch in exchange for borrowing the cruiser tonight. And that's when they notice that Quincannon's check is for much more than the cost of one truck. Cindy wonders if she can use the overage to buy something she's had her eye on, and she shows Jesse the Heckler and Cock catalog. Elsewhere, we find Jesse chatting with Skeeter about Cindy. He's getting to like her. And the fact that he has to do things legally now. Which I guess means no word of God, at least for the time being. Tricky one, Skeeter. Damn things like a gun. Pull it out when you got no choice, fine. You stick it in some old receptionist gal's face? Well, that ain't so good. That ain't my style. Now I went through some shit a while back, bad stuff I can't get straight in my head, could be it's made me careless. And the word, it's kind of of that time, and I ain't too sure I'm ready to go back there just yet. Tricky. So that sort of gives us some cover for why this plot has to happen. Why he can't just fix this with the word and move on. Right, why he can't just tell Quincannon, you know, leave and never come back. And have him do it. Yeah, we've sort of seen this before and it's laid out explicitly here. Jesse doesn't like using the word because it's a deadly weapon. It's escalating the situation. He would rather solve things with his fists and as well, over-relying on the word has gotten him in trouble in the past. Later that night, we find Jesse at Jody's bar. 
He says she looks nice, and she says she's getting used to the feel of being herself again. We have a little exchange here during which we learn that her employee, Toby, is incredibly stupid and that his girlfriend is pregnant. Right, Toby's trying to do a crossword puzzle. North American Burrow and Rodent. Six letters. Get Buffalo! It's Gopher, right? Gopher is what he's going to say. Yeah, that crossword thing is going to come back. And uh, what was the thing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what it was. Yeah, this is a funny piece of dialogue. He's describing a pregnancy scare he and his girlfriend have. But she wasn't, Christina asks. No, ma'am. Mr. Period. But that's okay. It happened once before. Oh? When? Last month. <laughs> and to which Jesse, like, just his eyes go wide, but he says nothing. <laughs> so, Christina reminds Jesse that he should be getting to know his people. And he says he's got one in mind. Yeah, rather than Toby, he decides to go hang out with Gunther. Now, is this where we left the last episode? Yeah, we left the last issue on the reveal that this friendly older fellow Gunther, he admits to Jesse, in fact, that he had come to America as a Nazi spy. Right. I've been expecting you. Yeah, well, I heard there was a Nazi spy living here. Figured it might be worth investigating. So I checked with the records office in the town hall. According to them, this house belongs to one Mark Vanderpoel. Has done for almost 50 years. That name don't sound too German to me. Dutch. I stopped using it years ago when I became an American citizen. I reverted to my own name, which I'd been using socially almost since I got here. But Vanderpoel was the name on the passport that got me into San Diego in June of 1943. All of which deserves an explanation. So for the next few pages, we get Gunther's story. His name is Gunther Hahn. He was born in Leipzig. And his older brother, Werner, flew for the Luftwaffe. Yeah, he flew a Messerschmitt 109. He was an ace, and Gunther was desperate to follow in his footsteps. But he didn't. Because those footsteps kind of sucked. <laughs> Specifically, they were uh, shot down by the English. And afterwards, Gunther met with Werner's commanding officer, Oberst Leifertz, at the funeral. Now, Leifertz told the story that Werner died instantly with no pain, and said he would recommend Gunther for the Luftwaffe. But Gunther tracked down Leifertz, found him in a bar that night, and got the truth. That in the Messerschmitt 109, the fuel tank is directly under the pilot's seat. One hit and fire will raise the cockpit temperature to 3,000 degrees in 10 seconds. Werner was still screaming after 20. I resolved right then and there that I was not going to die like that. So he joined the Luftwaffe Intelligence Division. He said he had no desire to serve patriotically after Werner's death, and he grew weary of the constant fear of living under a fascist regime. As an American, it will be hard for you to understand this, but everyday life in the Reich was like a minefield. You watched everything you said, told only the blandest jokes, and when you left your friends at night, you wondered who went home to bed and who to file reports. I grew sick of endlessly, fearfully reviewing my conversations for sedition, and by the end of 41, I knew we would lose anyway. How to get out, I wondered. How to get out. Go be a spy in the States. In one. So he arrives under the name Mark Vanderpoel in the United States. He has a contact in L.A., but he has no intention of going anywhere near him. And this is a really good bit of dialogue here where they talk about the myth of America, which I think this is kind of Garth Ennis speaking for himself a little bit here. Yeah. I like this country, Jesse. I like baseball and whiskey and mom's apple pie. Not my mom's apple pie, but you know what I mean. And the Stars and Stripes and John Wayne and fireworks on the 4th of July. And I like the myth of the place. 
the myth of America, that simple, honest men, born of her great plains and woods and skies, have made a nation of her, and will prove worthy of her when the time is right. Under harsh light it is false, but a good myth to live up to all the same. This is kind of a key idea, this concept of ideals that do not hold up to examination but are nonetheless worth living up to. But I think more importantly, Gunther's love of the myth of America reminds us of Cassidy, right? Of his conviction that you could land anywhere in America and the dream could begin, which is what Gunther actually did. So why trust me with all of this? This is your town now, Jesse. I felt it right that you should know. This is how honorable men deal with one another, is it not? And Gunther knew Jesse was honorable when he didn't smash the guy's face back when he first arrived in town in issue number 41. Well, now, way I always seen it, Gunther, what this country is about is a second chance. Fella comes here, leaves the old world behind, gets another shot at making it. You seem like you made the most of your shot, so who the hell am I to take it away from you? Law's only any use if it does some good. Before we close, we pop back in on Quinn Cannon's office, where he notes that Jesse's deputy, Cindy Daggett, was black. And he says that means he can call in some real talent. Yeah, and we see him with a look most evil on his face as he reaches for the phone. There's also a bit here where Miss Oatlash points out that he could just stop the check that he gave Jesse, but he's not interested in doing that. He's not interested in the expedient solution. He wants to go to war. Don't be so damn petty, Miss Oatlash. This is war here. And he, <laughs> he talks about how uh, George Bush used to fund Saddam Hussein before he started bombing him. Yeah, this is his parable, is that George Bush funded Saddam Hussein, and when he got caught, he went to war with him. Which he sees as somehow analogous to his situation. Worth mentioning here that Quinn Cannon is just dropping racial slurs all over this page. First about Saddam Hussein, and then about Deputy Daggett. Yeah, that's why we didn't read much of it. Right, but established as a racist jerk. Yeah! Oh man, and that will continue into the next issue, the next couple of issues. Okay, that brings us to Preacher number 45, Southern Cross. This has the same creative team as the last issue. Do you want to talk about this Glenn Fabry cover? This is a lovely cover with Jesse and Skeeter looking down on the town of Salvation from atop a cliff under this great big blue sky. We open on Exterior Sheriff's Office Day. We see a limo and a Quincannon meets truck parked outside. Bring out the prisoners. So Miss Oatlash is here picking up these plant workers who Jesse arrested last night. They seem a little worse for wear. Resist an arrest. Oh, and this and fucked that in the cells, but I guess that's their business. Yeah, so Jesse seems to be taking it as a point of personal pride that he does nothing to discourage rape in his holding facilities. This whole rape joke that we keep going back to over and over again is not cool. This is going to be a running gag for the rest of the issue, that this guy keeps complaining that this other guy raped him in the cell. Yeah. And Jesse's just nonchalance about it is not very attractive. Jesse says, Now you want to put up the bail for these fucks, you know the routine. So we get the sense that time has passed and that this keeps happening. There's another line that mentions this is the third time in two weeks that he's arrested the Quincannon men. Yeah, Miss Oatlash says that he has an obligation to hold them under humane conditions, but Jesse takes a sort of Joe Arpaio <laughs> type stand on it and says, I caught this drunk piece of shit pissing in a fella's mailbox. Don't talk to me about humane conditions. Despite her complaints, Miss Oatlash is unable to defy Jesse's conditions. 
He reminds her that if they kept the workmen out of salvation, they wouldn't have a problem. She denies responsibility for that issue and instead brings up the tenuous legality of his sheriff status. Don't think for a minute that the illegality of your position has passed me by. As I understand it, your appointment has yet to be ratified by election. Your police brutality isn't even that. But Jesse points out that he's not concerned about the legalities and neither is Odin. He's taking this whole thing personal. He wipes his ass on the law on a daily basis. Silk, actually, apparently. And at this point, Mazotlash changes the subject by awkwardly trying to ask Jesse out. Do you like Italian food? I love Italian. And so do you. Then we no, that's a... not what he says. <laughs> <laughs> this comic could have gone in a completely different direction, except all of the characters would have to have been completely different people. <laughs> Indeed. We get basically a full page here of Miss Oatlash admiring Jesse, unnoticed by him, before he says, Y'all still here? Yeah, there's also a moment that I like here where the two, the two bodyguards that have gotten their asses kicked by Jesse twice now. Oh maybe, yeah, brown suit and blue suit. <laughs> yeah, maybe three times are, like, glaring at him, and Jesse just gives them a, boys? <laughs> <laughs> so a little later, we see the new pickup that Jesse bought with the Quincannon money, after, he mentions, paying Johnny Lee Wombat back for the destroyed pickup that he had borrowed. Hell, I figured only thing more quintessentially American than one of these would be a goddamn horse. Christina says, You are just like your father, Jesse, living a Western. Jesse wants to know, is he really like his father? Oh, yes. You have a sense of purpose driving you to do what you feel you must. A strong one, like a fire inside you. In John, it had abated. Vietnam did that. It hadn't burnt out, but he'd made his peace with it. I hope you can. And Christina adds that he got a lot of his skills from Jody. Credit where credit's due. He taught you well. And she is pleased to be reminded, You strangled him, right? Till his goddamn eyes bugged out. See you later, Mom. Now, at this point, we cut to... The boys, the men of the factory, confronting Odin Quincannon. We learn here that Quincannon promised them the run of the town for letting off steam before they moved here from Houston. If they don't have it, they say, they'll just go back to Houston. One of them suggests going back to town and kicking Jesse's ass. Outlash points out that Jesse would just win again. Look, boys, old Odin's got it all under control. You go on back to work. This time next week, Custer's gonna seem no more in a bad memory, and salvation'll be yours again. You got my word on that. After leaving the crowd, Odin, undressing as he goes, instructs his bodyguards and Miss Oatlash, There's some boys arriving around four this afternoon. You see to it they ain't delayed by security or any of that bullshit. Till then, Odin ain't to be disturbed. Not for anything, understand? Yeah, and he is stripping off as he heads into his meat shack. Huh, <sighs> gross. <laughs> Also where we find Jesse arbitrating a dispute about some stolen wood that was to be used to repair a shed. It's just like high noon. I knew it would be. Yeah, you've got one guy here who's looking way too relaxed and satisfied with himself. He's lounging in a Hawaiian shirt with a beer in his hand. The other guy is more buttoned up. Uptight and frustrated and with Elvis hair? Yes. The Elvis hair isn't important to his frustration. It's just... It's just there. Now, over the course of the scene, we get the clear understanding that these two neighbors don't like each other, but they're both happy that Jesse has put a stop to the meat plant men's havoc. Right. The uh, lumber that was to be used to repair the shed was stolen to repair a roof instead, but the reason the roof was damaged and the reason the shed were damaged was the same. Quinn Cannon boys. Yeah, Jesse points out that they bring money into the town, but they counter that 
the Quincannon men barely spend enough to cover the cost of the damage they cause. So Jesse goes to check the trash cans. The perpetrator tries to warn him off by saying that they're full of awful female menstrual byproducts. I'd tell a lie. It ain't a bit like high noon. Jesse finds the lumber inside, of course. Or rather, the broken lumber that was formerly on the roof. Two ways we can settle this thing, fellas. One is officially, where I fill out enough forms to paper a good-sized barn, and after a long, long time waiting for that shitheel of a judge to get back off his ass, Buck pays Walter back for the lumber, and maybe enough to cover about half his court costs. The other is unofficially, where Buck pays Walter back for the lumber, and lets him have a free shot in the mouth, and we call quits right here and now. You're saying you're gonna stand there and let him bust me one in the face? If you're agreeable. Hell, why not? So, Walter punches Buck in the face, ineffectually. Well, I sure do feel a whole lot better for having took my punishment like a man. Yes, sir, this is where I become a responsible citizen. Word of advice, Walter. Don't drop your shoulder like that before you swing. He'll see what's coming. Have time to get ready. And Jesse punches out Buck. Buck wakes up, telling him I'm having a little meeting tonight to talk over the Quincannon thing. 7.30 at Jody's Bar and Grill. See you there. Now, back at Quincannon's office, he and Miss Oatlash are debating bringing in the KKK. Yeah, Miss Oatlash is uncomfortable with it, both legally and morally, she says. And he points out, Anyhow, what the hell's got up your ass? Thought you'd have been right behind us with all your big hero Adolf had to say. There is no direct evidence that the Fuhrer held racist views. There ain't? A vile smear on the part of his detractors. That aspect of the Third Reich has been blown out of proportion. But they got his speeches on tape. I fucking heard them. Speeches can be dubbed. Anyway, when Cannon protests, it'll be worth it when the KKK guys take out Jesse. But the KKK isn't quite sure about taking out Custer yet so they've decided to test him. More on that later. Meanwhile at Jody's, this is the meeting Jesse was talking about, Jesse tells the gathered townsfolk that he's going to have to go to war with Quincannon, and since it's their homes at risk, he needs to be sure this is what they want from him. Right, he's trying to get the consent of the community. Any questions? Cora has the first question, but why did he invite the black folks? Jesse facepalms. Great White Whales sort of got herself a point, when the law around here ever give a damn about folks in John's Hollow, anyhow? Cindy Daggett jumps in. You recall Jim Bewley arresting a Quincannon man for trespassing on your property, Marvin? Because last week me and Jesse did it twice. Jesse, huh? Cindy is embarrassed, but it's at this point that Gunther jumps in, too. Perhaps my views will lack legitimacy for some of you. I was not born or raised here, but it seems to me a vital point is being overlooked. Just because Salvation is a tiny town does not mean its problems can be ignored as insurmountable. To quit in the face of daunting odds, to disintegrate in our own apathy and petty differences because we can no longer even hope for victory, would be a terrible mistake. And, if I may be so bold, completely contrary to the spirit of the land in which we live. One guy asks, what's he saying? And Jesse replies, he's saying y'all are Texans. And it's up to you to decide what that's going to mean here. Is it a bunch of fat, bigoted rednecks giving in to crooks and corporations because they're too big to fight and we kind of like them in charge of us anyhow, the way the Yankees see us? Or is it drawing a line in the dust and saying no further? I'll fight the son of a bitch. You just say yes or no. Awesome. Yeah, that's a good bit. Later on, we find Jesse and Gunther on the porch. We haven't actually seen the outcome of the meeting. Gunther says he doesn't believe that Americans are lazy, selfish people who always take the easy way out, even if this time all they had to do was send their hero out to fight on their behalf. I ain't no hero, Gunther. 
Later, we find Jesse drinking alone in the closed sheriff's office while remembering Cassidy, Tulip, and their adventures. Tried it once, but it didn't take. Yeah, he's got a strong memory here of, uh, of kissing Tulip. Yeah. So Jesse gets drunk as hell, but no throwing up. <laughs> Cindy drives up. Uh, unbeknownst to her, she's being tailed by the KKK with Quinn Cannon in the car. She goes to wake up Jesse, who's passed out in his office, and the two of them have a, a near miss. Yeah, they almost kiss, but then she hears a noise from outside. Shit. There's a burning cross on the front lawn. Jesse heads outside, unzips his fly, and puts the fire out by pissing on it. Casually heading back inside. Think we got clan trouble. Okay, Odin. We'll kill him. I gotta point this out. <laughs> we have this full page of Odin and the clan men sitting in the car, and the clan guys are wearing the full regalia to sit in a car with darkened windows. <laughs> yeah, I think that's supposed to be kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, it could be that they're hiding their identities from Quinn Cannon, but they just look ridiculous here. Now, it's interesting, I don't remember where it happened, but it seems like a big part of the reason that Quinn Cannon gets the KKK on his side is the implication that Jesse and Cindy might be sleeping together. He calls it miscegenation. Yeah, when the car drives up, he says, there's your goddamn miscegenation right there. And uh, it's definitely Jesse's reaction to the burning cross that settles things in their minds. Yeah, they are thugs, but they need sort of the, the barest pretense of principle. Well, that brings us to Preacher number 46. Now, this has the same creative team as the last issue. So issue 46 starts with a Glenn Fabry cover. It shows Odin Quincannon and just how diminutive and ridiculous he looks in his KKK robes. Yeah, it's all the clan members standing around, and Quincannon is very short and looks kind of ridiculous. He's got big glasses and big bugged-out eyes, too. Oh man, you can see his eyes. Yeah, sometimes you can see his eyes on covers. Almost never in the uh, comic book. So we've got Jesse and Cindy playing baseball. And she says, about last night. Jesse immediately apologizes for pissing in front of a lady, but she meant before that. The nearly smooching part. We get a panel of awkward silence here. <laughs> the awkward silence is broken by the dog, <laughs> who senses the need for his input and says, woof, woof, woof. <laughs> and Jesse says, goddamn intuitive dog. Changing the subject, Cindy asks about Quinn Cannon and the clan. Shouldn't we be getting ready for war or something? We are, Jesse says as he hits a homer. Oh yeah, you got Cindy. That's a nice little touch. He hits the ball. We don't see what happened to it, except that Cindy is like looking over her shoulder for where it went. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't run or anything. He just pauses to light up his cigarette. That's Cut. Babe Ruth style. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we get our title, White Mischief. So Miss Oatlash will not be deterred. She's decided she has to talk to Odin Quincannon. She brushes off the warnings of his bodyguards and goes into the meat shack. Yeah, she sees something. We don't, although we can hear, again, Odin's detailed sexual instructions. Yeah, he's saying probe the root. I, I don't even, I'm a grown man. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I'm not sure probing is ever. <laughs> I mean, I'm not here to kink shame. <laughs> Whatever she sees, she runs outside and vomits. Quincannon wanders out after her, clueless as to what has gotten her so upset, and wonders aloud whether maybe she's pregnant? Yeah, he says probably pregnant goddamn split tails. That's a really offensive term. Yeah, I had never heard it before, but it just means women, if you're a horrible human being. 
Anyway, Oatlash is here to ask Quincannon for the last time not to have the clan murder a sheriff, as there will be nothing she can do to protect him from the legal consequences. Although it also seems kind of like she's worried about Jesse here. He says, Like hell! So she offers her resignation, but he says she can't quit, because she can't find another boss who will tolerate her heathen Nazi perversions, or another workforce that'll volunteer for them. Where are you going to find another boss like Odin? Custer dies tonight, so you better just get used to it. You be ready with that goddamn legal magic of yours in case there's any slip-ups, and leave the rest to me. And that scene on a panel of Miss Outlash lost in thought. And then we cut to Cindy saying, This is so cool. Yeah, and she's holding a big-ass gun. Yeah, a rifle with a scope and a laser sight. Now that they've got it, Jesse says, it's time to take the fight to the clan. They have a fax from the Houston PD with information. Oh, yeah, okay, so the fax turns out not to be from the FBI. The Houston PD. Turns out not to be from them either. Instead, it just shows a guy in a clan hood and says, Bone Tree, Midnight, a friend. It's a trap, Cindy says. Yeah, she gives Akbar's warning. <laughs> But Jesse protests that if they wanted to lure him into a trap, there are easier ways to do it. Just call 911. Right, he's the sheriff. They could get him to respond to any trouble call. And he asks what bone tree means. So Cindy explains that there's this tree with the top sheared off by lightning. It was formerly used as a lynching tree until the night lightning struck it while the three Bryson brothers from John's Hollow were hanging on it still alive. After that, she says, it sort of entered clan mythology as proof God hated N-words. What I know of the Lord, I guess it wouldn't surprise me. It's shitty, Cindy. It's the South. At Jody's, we find Jesse and Cindy sharing a drink before the fight. And we are focused on Gunther and Christina chatting about them. Yeah, in this scene, we've kind of got two couples each watching the other, and commenting on how they're becoming a couple. Yeah, it's a neat structure for a scene. Gunslingers, sharing one last drink before doing what they've got to do. That's what they remind me of. I wonder what they're up to. Christina wonders if there's something between them, but Gunther says Jesse's first love is duty. He's seen it before, in lots of soldiers. They wonder what difference their duty has made, but never once betray it. Their mothers are always beautiful, of course. Ennis has got a lot of plates balanced here. He's got a number of subplots going on, but he's giving them a little bit of attention. Gunther is still flirting with Christina. That might turn into a thing. I this love plates. They often contain dinners. <laughs> but there may be a little bit of foreshadowing here, as Gunther's speech about duty doesn't quite sound like somebody who lost all his patriotic illusions. Well, I don't think Gunther is saying he's one of those guys. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I wondered if he considered himself one of the soldiers who did his duty and wondered if it made a difference, but never betrays it. Of course, he did betray his duty. Came to America. Ran away. Defected. We'll see. Well, that's why I called it foreshadowing. Gunther's a real nice guy, Cindy observes. Gunther's a swell guy, but it's my mom, you know? Damn, what is it about tough guys and their mothers? She's supposed to be the one to worry about you. Hey, if she was Mrs. Han, I guess that'd sort of make him your daddy, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't. Elsewhere in the bar, Cora waxes protective towards Hector. We've met these characters once before, we had them explained to us anyway. I won't let the nasty men tell no more Mexican jokes. Less they're funny ones, that is. Ha! At 11.20, Jesse and Cindy set out to do battle on behalf of the good folks of salvation. <laughs> they're really racist folks of salvation. They may be rednecks, Cindy says, but there are rednecks. And speaking of foreshadowing, as Jesse passes Toby at the bar, he gives him another crossword hint. 
Five down is Alamo, Toby. Remembered in Texas? Really? As they go, Gunther smiles and Christina looks worried. Yeah, she warns them to be careful. The KKK guys are gathered around the tree. Odin's not there yet, and they're talking about how boring he is. Yeah, all he ever talks about is his hatred for black people. Sure, that's kind of the point, but... All I'm saying is the rest of us talk about other things, you know? Just the other day, me and Luke had a real good conversation about tractor pulls. Now, although Odin is clearly a racist, I read this as suggesting that he's playing up that aspect of his personality to retain the clan's loyalty. Yeah, he doesn't know what else to talk to the KKK guys about. Yeah. He has other interests other than racism. Meat? Exactly. Maybe it's getting ahead of ourselves. Have we mentioned that Quincannon, who has bizarre sexual tastes, makes fun of Miss Outlash for her bizarre sexual tastes? Yeah, it probably came up. Okay. The two bodyguard guys, the punchbag twins, as Jesse has been known to call them, are talking about the clan. The one guy says, I knew a lot of black boys in the Navy, and some of them weren't bad guys. What are you, some kind of communist? Blue suit is interrupted by something that he sees. Oh, no. Meanwhile... This clan leader guy, I don't know clan ranks, he's probably a wizard or a dragon or some other cool D&D word that the bastards tried to misappropriate. <laughs> I guess he's the senior cocksucker in the vicinity. <laughs> <laughs> he's giving a little speech saying how Jesse's not a properly appointed sheriff, so there shouldn't be much legal blowback. Yeah, and he also has some rather vile plans. He says, they're gonna gut the son of a bitch like a goddamn catfish, and make Cindy lap up the mess. Yeah, that's horrifying. As he is saying that, we can see Jesse pulling the spark plugs out of somebody's car. Oh, is that what he's doing? I wonder what he was throwing there. This comes back in a couple of pages. He finishes his speech. Any questions? I got one. You ladies make them dresses yourselves, or you buy them from Crackers R Us? Okay, yeah, it's a joke reinforcing traditional gender roles and dismissing gender-fluid appearances, but... He's also calling the Ku Klux Klan outfit stupid, which is well-deserved. <laughs> Mister, you are fucking dead. Jesse just smiles. So they start threatening Jesse, but then a red dot appears on the leader guy's face. Fuck. Y'all take a real good look at that little dot there. Anyone else wants to grow one just like it, all they gotta do is try talking when I'm talking. Gal I got out there will put you fucks down like a pack of rabid dogs. Unheard by anyone, Cindy says. I love you too. Odin, the following is for your benefit. Watch and learn. First off, I think we'll have them dumb-looking masks off. They object until Cindy puts a bullet between the top of Leader Guy's head and the point of his stupid hat. Yeah, and it looks like she shot a hole in his toupee. <laughs> I didn't put that together. That's what that is. He's got a bullet-riddled toupee in the next panel. That's pretty great. Now, Jesse, seeing the clan guys with their masks off, is unimpressed. Jesus Christ. Why is it the greatest champions of the white race always turn out to be the worst examples of it? You! Where the fuck is your chin? Jesse says he could have them all shot, or he could order them to leave, and they would. One doesn't believe that, so Jesse orders him to shit himself. But he won't do that, because he'd rather kick their asses. Yeah, he says that that's not where his authority comes from in this instance. His authority comes from the law. He's the sheriff. Okay, so the biggest clan guy, Gary, steps forward to fight Jesse. Takes off his shirt to show off his muscles. He explains that he used to be the little guy in the Charles Atlas ads until he followed a Charles Atlas ad. Then I saw an advert in Beefcake magazine showing this book about building muscle mass. 
Rode off and got the free steroid course, came with the hardback edition. Learned some kind of zen thing about focusing your will on your body when you're working out. Built myself thighs of iron, arms of steel, pecs of rock, balls of mush. Jesse grabs him by the balls and, without letting go, tells the assembled assholes that he's not shooting them or ordering them off because he doesn't want more of them to grow back. He wants to make an impression. I'm going to do like you do. I'm going to make fear my weapon. Everybody is ready? Now fear this. This town is off-limits to sheet-wearing motherfuckers like you. I had my way every hate-mongering piece of shit on the planet thinks he's God's chosen just because of his color would be strongly encouraged to get the fuck off of it. Man judges another by his skin ain't worthy to be called one. Yeah, so this is a nice speech calling out that racism is not only a really low way of treating other people, but it's just kind of pathetic to need that in order to feel okay about yourself. Now, you gather up your garbage, including brains of shit here, and you go on home to your fat old clan sows, and the next time you're planning something stupid, you pray to fucking Jesus someone like me don't take an interest. We are out there. Message ends. <laughs> brains of shit. <laughs> he finally lets go of Gary's balls, which are bleeding now. And leader guy objects, telling him that Jesse hasn't seen what they've seen, what gives them the impetus to be out here. Their way of life being swallowed up by goddamn alien cultures. So, Jesse takes objection to that, and he drags leader guy off to have further words. The rest of the rabble disperses, despite Odin's plaintive whines. Fellas! Fellas! They, uh, give the clan leader guy, who clarifies that his title is Grand Cyclops. That's another word he doesn't get. They're in the car, and Cindy is driving very fast into John's Hollow. FBI's got a file on you a mile long, Jimbo, including the seat-sniffing thing. But I explained all about that. You paid off the trooper arrested you, you mean. Jesse reminds him once again that there's no way the clan can beat him, beat Jesse, and then he throws leader guy out of the car. In his robe. Into John's Hollow. Blackfellow walks out of a bar and sees this. Lawsy me and other such utterances. A fella attired in the manner of a well-known racist organization. Peckerwood walks to Houston naked. Now sports. Meanwhile, Quinn Cannon's car. Jesse has ripped the spark plugs out of it, so Blue Suit and Brown Suit are slowly pushing it back to the meat plant. And it looks like they're both beat up, too. Yeah, they lost another fight with Jesse, off-panel. Quinn Cannon, by the way, is sitting in the driver's seat of the car, sort of barely able to see over the steering wheel, waiting as the guys push him back home. So what are you gonna do now, Mr. Quinn Cannon? Throw a barbecue. I'm gonna burn that fucking town clear down to the ground. Well, that brings us to the end of our materials for this episode. Yeah, that's it for this week. The conflicts between Jesse and Quinn Cannon reaching ahead as they will have one more big clash in the next three issues. So yeah, that was some that was some really political preacher comic books. Yeah, that's right. I think we talked about this once before and you said this is the arc in which preacher really takes on racism. Yep. And you know, like like Cindy said, it's the South. Uh, it's definitely part of the history of the South, endemic racism. And perhaps it's something that needed to be addressed as we have an unapologetically Texan hero who has waxed very enthusiastic about his home in the South. Like what Preacher does with masculinity, sort of stripping away the toxic myth-making around it and focusing in on the positive elements, there are good bits of Southern history and culture as well. We have the moment where Jesse reminds the townspeople, y'all are Texans. Right. You know, 
resolve and standing up for yourself are good things. Uh, racism is just dumb. Yeah, this reminds me of kind of the national conversation that's going on right now in the wake of the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. You know, the sort of coastal or northern liberal groupthink is like, well, good for the South when they vote in Democrats like we want them to, but looks down on them and kind of says, well, what do you expect? It's a backwards place down there when elections don't go the left's way. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of Southern liberals kind of protesting that. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. You know, the sort of condescension that comes from people in the urban North. Okay, okay. And I think I see, I think I see reflections of that in the way that Jesse is saying, like, we're going to show them that the South is about sticking up for ourselves. We're going to show that we're not the way that the Yankees see us. Right, yeah. When he sort of fights off this pernicious influence that's threatening to invade his town, he's not just standing up for himself and salvation, but for what, uh, what the South should be, in his view. But yeah, these are also just some really fun issues to read. They've got, you know, action and romance and comedy. They have a message, but they're very entertaining. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. We get to see, once again, the good guys kick some ass. Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a glorious moment, the way that Jesse and Cindy basically take down the whole clan, just the two of them. Yeah, and this is kind of a low-challenge arc for Jesse. The threat, at least so far, doesn't come from, from without, from his enemies. They're all pretty well beneath him. Yeah, and so as a result of that, we get him trying to do it with one hand tied behind his back, right? He's not going to use the word of God. He doesn't have to face up to any of his demons. This right. Is, this is a different kind of evil that has nothing to do with the scars he's carrying. Yeah, that's right. So it's something he can use as a kind of a stepstone to get back on his feet. But as you say, he hasn't fully faced down the demons from War in the Sun yet, and he won't until the end of this arc. Now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This! where I blindside Sean with a newer Vertigo comic. How did I not see this coming? <laughs> this week, Sean is going to read Border Town Number 2 oh, yeah. by Eric M. Esquivel and Ramon Villalobos. So previously on Border Town, we had a young man who had moved to a town that is both on the border of the U.S. and Mexico, but also the border of the living world and the spirit world. Yes. And he was really unhappy to be there. He had made some friends, including guy who wore a luchador mask all the time right and possibly a small chupacabra but that small chupacabra went back to the world of the dead and the king of the dead was like you're in big trouble yeah the king of the dead was like kill that chupacabra yeah i remember all that somehow it was a good issue okay this was border town number two mascaras or masks i think written by eric m esquivel art by ramon villalobos Color by Tamara Bonvillain, and yeah, I believe the cover is also by Villalobos. So uh, we open up on Quinta at his house. I think it's Quinta, Quinta or Quinta. And this yeah. is good because he's been, I mean, they had a lot of characters to establish in the first issue, but he's been a little bit of a character to this point. So it's nice to see into his home and his head a bit and get why he's wearing the mask, which he's basically, he's scared to go to school, so he puts on a mask, puts on a character. Oh, okay. I thought it was because no one cared who he was. 
Bane. Yeah, Bane. This has been, this has been comics with Bane. <laughs> no one cared who he was. And it is, is Quinta, later in the issue, who realizes what's going on with the chupacabras, that they are also wearing masks. They're putting on a false front to look tough, which is why they look like whatever people fear, be it illegal immigrants, or in this case, some, some hippie commies. <laughs> right. Yeah, and as I'm skipping ahead a little bit, I hope you weren't planning to go through the, the whole comic beat by beat, but when all hell breaks loose later, the news media like seems to universally carry it as terrorism. Right, right Which yeah. reflects that same idea. Yeah, I'll find the line here, but... Reports are conflicted and run the gamut from sightings of political protesters to religious terrorists to little green men. All that's clear is that something dangerous has crossed the border between the United States and Mexico, and whatever it is is causing people to fear for their lives. They say it came from across the border. We know, of course, that it came from the spirit world, not from across the Mexican border. Right. And we have this beautiful section in the spirit world as our chupacabra friend who has fled there at the end of the last issue is being chased by Miklantakutli, the Lord of the Dead here. And he bids his subjects to all catch him because it turns out when he crosses over, he's damaging the, the walls between realities. And then we get this amazing two-page spread of all of these these legendary spirits of some kind. Yeah, this part was fucking cool. That fucking owl dude. Yeah, there's this uh, this woman who's half beautiful and half zombie riding an undead horse. And these two dudes, the duendes, who are like little potatoes with faces. Yeah. One of them tries to cross over in the wake of our chupacabra friend and gets ripped in half for his impudence. Yeah, the king of the undead, like, reaches into his mouth and tears him in half through the mouth. Yeah, yeah, pretty gross. So our heroes, having gone home and decided to basically ignore the whole thing, like, do a rose walker and just move past the weird shit in your life, they all get the reports that something's going on and they all decide they have to investigate and Frank, the main character, comes out in Canada cosplay with his jacket and his ball cap and his bat. <laughs> is they, that um akira yeah okay they pretty quickly figure out that our one guy is is basically a nice monster he just happens to be trying to hide out here and his his brothers are here to bring him back they get in a little bit of a fight with the monsters they seem to be losing so they run and they hide inside the combination santeria and comic book shop where they are about to get a lecture and what's really going on from the mystical old woman right yeah, so that's a pretty good second chapter, moving right along, getting some good plot development, some good character development, and, again, really awesome sequence in the world of the dead. Did you notice that the restaurant was called What You Taco About? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, I also like that when we, we get the shot, like, the same shot of each of them running towards the the action, and then it turns out that's, like, actually their spatial relationship as they plow right into each other. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty fun. That was funny stuff. So do you think you're going to read more? Yeah, I'm really interested in this now. We're not up to the minute. I think there's like two more issues out at this point. But yeah, really awesome comics. Yeah, well worth a look. And I'm curious, I can look this up sometime afterward, whether all of these sort of legendary creatures are in fact creatures of legend, uh, not just inventions of the comic book. I think that you compared this, when we read issue one, you kind of compared it with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how this comic is doing for, like, the immigration debate, what Buffy did with feminism. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. There's a comment on the cover of this issue that I want to share. 
Border Town may be the most sharply satirical work that Vertigo Comics has published since Preacher, says Screen Rant. Not bad. Yeah, and it's got some some sharply topical dialogue. So definitely worth a look. All right, moving on. Join us in our next Preacher episode, where we wrap up the Salvation story arc with Jesse Get Your Gun. But first, join us next week as Sandman wraps up the Tales at World's End with Ceremonies. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. That's V-E-R-T-I-G-U-Y-S dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. But do not spell blueberry V-E-R-T-I-G-U-Y-S under any circumstances. (laughs) No circumstances whatsoever. But you'll find... Lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode there. If you want to get in touch with us, and we'd love to hear your questions, as well as what you'd like to hear from the podcast, then reach out to us on Twitter, at Vertiguys. You can find me at BlankCastSean. We have a Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com, and a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. I'm renewing the call. Leave us a positive rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app, and we will discuss your kind words on the air. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Daredevil's probably really expensive to make, too. Uh, yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, Wilson Fisk's legal fees alone. (laughs) (laughs) So two things. Like, one is, you know, a big theme of the the third season was, will Daredevil kill uh, Kingpin? Yeah, that's not a theme, but okay. (laughs) Would it be right to kill the Kingpin? Is that a theme? It's better. (laughs) One of the thematic quandaries <laughs> raised in the text. Jerk. <laughs> and, you know, would it be right to kill the kingpin? Would it destroy Daredevil as a person to have committed one murder? Although, having rewatched the entire series, he definitely killed Nobu. Just killed the fuck out of Nobu, knowing he was going to do it. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. And, you know, I understand why it's thematically important for Matt not to cross that line, how it would damage him as an individual, how it would maybe, you know, invalidate his whole crusade as Daredevil. At the same time, Kingpin's so awful that I just don't feel bad about it. No, just have Karen do it. (laughs) She kills people all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's like, and it's the same comment that I made, that the Avengers kill people all the time, and the Netflix heroes spend their whole season wrestling with should I kill him? And deciding not to, when their villains are doing so much worse stuff. Right, right, no, it's like, should I... <laughs> should I kill this uh, deranged lunatic who's, like, offing restaurateurs right and left? <laughs> I'm watching Daredevil, and I keep having this fantasy of, like, Foggy and Matt are gonna have this big argument. I'm gonna go kill the Kingpin. No, Matt, you can't come back if you cross that line. No, Foggy, we tried it your way, and he storms off, and he's standing at the base of the, the hotel, and he's about to climb up there and kill Fisk, and Iron Man just flies by and blows up the top floor of the building. 